Well, good morning. Good morning. Just checking to make sure you're awake. I know it's been a busy weekend. Sports enthusiasts, we're not out of the woods yet. Got one more day. Pelicans are looking good. LSU continues to shock all of us. Come on, I mean, I'm an LSU fan, but how many of you guys are just surprised, right? Just whatever gets in front of them, they just play a little better than that, and they win. One more today. Well, we are, if you are new to gathering with us on Sunday morning, we are in the midst of studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so we have ventured into chapters 1 and 2, and today we will get all the way to chapter 3, and we've kind of, we've arrived at chapter 3 slowly, because there's some bits and pieces that if you race past them, they won't do you much good. And so we have, today we're going to have the benefit of collecting some of those bits and pieces, and you're going to see why these things fit together the way they do. How many guys would agree with me, before we start reading the passage here, that natural-mindedness is on the increase in the world that you live in? How about in your own life? Would you say that you see increased natural-mindedness in your own life? Just the tendency to default to what the eye sees and the ear hears and what we can reason our way into figuring out and understanding that that's what shapes and influences decisions we make and how we live, how we're managing life, how we're managing the issues and struggles of life. You know, sometimes it's those issues and struggles that grab the headlines of our lives. And so we, we get very much in touch with something that's yanking at your heart this week, something that you stumbled over, something that got your emotions going. And, you know, you come to church and you, and you want to hear something about that. You know, speak to me about that. Speak to me about this new season I'm venturing into or, or how the wheels have come off of my life and, and I'm just hurting this morning or I'm confused and we just want the message to land right there in that little piece of real estate. And so if I stand in front of you on a Sunday morning and say, hey, this morning, guys, I'm so excited. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the cross. Or we're going to venture into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That can feel like, uh, well, yeah, you're supposed to do that. You're a pastor and that's a pulpit. But why don't you talk about something I really need to hear? Why don't you talk about something that's really going on in my life? Something that's really, really affecting me. All right, well, let me just pick up a, a little bit of a problem sandwich here that's in 1 Corinthians. Let's just look at the way in which this section that we have been sitting in has been laid out. Right? We began with this thought. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Only 10 verses into this book, and, and Paul is immediately going to be raising some issues of concern. I appeal to you, brothers. I don't think this is up here, so if you've got a, a real Bible, you're going to have to turn there with me. Most of this is going to be on slides, but I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each one of you says, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Right, so there's division, there's quarreling, there's conflict, there's not getting along among people who call themselves Christians together. And I want to land in this setting, obviously the setting for Paul and, in, and a, a setting I think needs to gain some importance in all of our minds is this setting right here. This is the, the setting that Paul is referring to is it matters whether Christians who gather together in a local setting and call themselves a church get along, have unity, are together, have agreement, are walking things out and they're not divided and quarreling among each other. But I, I know this, this 
setting is not as primary of a setting as, for instance, your marriages or your own home, where there could be quarreling and conflicts and fighting. Right? So there's a, a context here of relationships. But for the Corinthians, it's going to be one context of many problems that they're going to have. So this is where we start with them. And we fast forward from that, that one passage right there into chapter 3. This is kind of the bookends. Bookends actually go a bit further, but this is a good bookend right here. So that's what he says in chapter 1. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Right, now, now, this begins to be some words that wash up into our lives that, okay, I can, I can go there here. Right? How many of us would, would like to have jealousy and strife dealt with in our lives. And if you haven't realized that, those words, they take up big real estate. This is Texas and Alaska in our lives. This is big pieces of property here. Jealousy, comparison, striving after a name, a reputation, recognition. We want to be something or we want to be protected from something. So we operate in a lot of fear in our lives. And daily we wake up and combat those issues in our lives. And so, Keith, how about a, pre a message on, on being free from fear and free from control and jealousy and striving and ambitions? How about a message on that? All right, how about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, and 3? How about the doctrine of the cross? How about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? How many guys are here? And don't do what I'm about to say, but I just want, if you're a married person here today, I feel like the Lord wants to minister to some married couples at the end of the service here. So don't leave because I said that. You know, when you, when you need marriage counseling, what, what are you thinking you need to hear? No, we do a lot of marriage counseling, so we talk in all kinds of categories. And you need to hear all kinds of categories. But, but marriage counseling and the doctrine of the cross, do you, have, do you ever put those two together? Marriage counseling and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, do you ever put those two together? It's like when we come from marriage counseling, it's like, hey, hey, you know, Let's talk about communication. Let's talk about men and women. You know, let's get, go into those topics. And the Bible's got a lot to say about those things. But right here, Paul is going to put his finger on doctrines that if they are not engaged and understood and impacting us, they show up in all the other places where these other things are making our lives fall apart. Without the doctrine of the cross and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you more than likely have problems with jealousy and striving and competing and running people over and controlling them for your own good and your own self-interest, you likely have problems in these areas. And the solution to them is found in the doctrine of the cross and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A couple of thoughts from some helpful commentators. Gordon Fee says, with these sentences, speaking of the end of chapter two there, the argument of the present paragraph, as well as that of the whole section that began in 117, is brought to its conclusion. By their actions, they have proved themselves to be less than truly spiritual, indeed fleshly, acting like mere humans who do not have the spirit. D.A. Carson says it this way, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, is part of one sustained argument that runs from 110 all the way to 421. Primarily, Paul addresses the deep divisiveness the wretched factionalism that plagues the church at Corinth. Certain people from Chloe's household have informed him how some of the church say, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or someone else. That theme is still tripping along in this chapter. Pragmatically, 
Listen, their, their love of pomp, of prestige, rhetoric, social approval, publicly lauded wisdom. In short, their raw triumphalism, right? We just, I just want to advance my issue, my cause. I want myself to be greater. Demonstrated that, listen, I think this is spot on. They had not reflected very deeply on the entailment of the gospel of the crucified Messiah. So here's Paul's argument. You are in this shape because you were ignorant of something. Something God has revealed you don't know enough about. What is it? Well, it's this mystery that the Holy Spirit has to make known to you. So let's back up into chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, verse 1, we went through these first few verses. Let me just give us a context and then we'll read our verses for today. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Can you imagine? Listen, we live in a world where we come to counseling with problems and we get this kind of advice. And we respond. And I've heard people respond this way. Listen, I've got real problems, right? I'm, I'm going to need some real counseling. All right, I'm just telling you what the Apostle Paul in the Bible say. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Well, Lord, as we engage this passage today, this passage highlights a reality for us. There is something that we need to encounter and know in a deep, abiding way that is more than what our eyes can see and what our ears can hear or what we can come up with through our own imagination. It's secret. It is hidden. It's not accessible through natural means. It must be revealed by the Spirit. So, Lord, we are here today aware of our struggles, our difficulties, the things we can't stand about our lives. We need to see something we can't see apart from your Spirit. And so, Lord, that's what we ask for today. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear in a way that only your Spirit can help us? In Jesus' name, amen. Go back in verse 6 there for a moment. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, all right? This, this section is not an advertisement for random, strange spiritual impressions that don't come from the Bible. I mean, it, sometimes people go there with this passage. Paul teaches a lot. Paul imparts a lot. There's a lot of words that come from this man. But the nature of them needs the revelation of the Spirit. And that's the point he's trying to make. Not that, hey, well, they've got words. We don't got anything like words. Well, no, he's got words. He's got a lot of words. It just don't have the same nature to them. He says, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Did you know that exists? 
Did you know that there's secret stuff out there? There is not, it's not just secret as in, you know, hey, it's hard to figure that stuff out. It's hidden as well. Did you know God does stuff like this? That God makes certain things secret and he hides certain things. Why do you hide something? Because you don't want it to be discovered. Right? This is very specific in this passage, but it's also revealed in scripture in other places. I'm going to let you see a little bit of that today. That this is not unusual with God. Did you know God has no intention of letting you know everything that there is to know? (laughs) In spite of how demanding we can be and hire our attorneys and accuse God of things because he's not telling us what we want to know in the moment we want to know it. Right? There's two things. There, There is some things that God knows that you and I will discover perhaps in eternity, but we will not know in this world. Are you okay with that? You can be able to do your life with that. And then there are some things that God is not going to reveal to you right now. He will at some point if he has planned to, but not right now. You got to be okay with that, right? This is not new to the Bible. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed, notice that word. We're going to see it a lot. It's a very important word. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. So there's secret things that you and I don't have access to. There are secret things that one day will be revealed, but they aren't right now. So again, no access there. But there are some things revealed. And those things are revealed so that we might do something. So revelation and doing are related. Can you see that real quickly? Because we're going to see it all over the place. The revelation of God and the doing of life, they are related. So here's the deal. You and I sometimes climb into our prayer closet, confront life, come before God, moaning and complaining, worried that we're just not, we're not, we don't have enough. God, you need to show me this or show me that. All right, God has revealed to us enough for us to do our lives. So if you're ever in a place where you feel like, you know, I just, just don't know what, you know enough to do, you know enough to do whatever it is God's got you doing right now. And if there's more that you need to know and you don't know it now, well, then you're just going to have to wait for the timing of God to know it and walk by faith where you are. But you're not paralyzed. You know what you need to know and God will make sure and reveal it. But in this particular context, this, this mystery of God has a particular element to it. Ephesians chapter 1, New Testament's going to unpack this mystery that's been hidden. Verse 7 of chapter 1, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Right? This is the nature of Revelation. How did we come to be aware of everything in that paragraph? The redemption that comes through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, the lavishing of grace upon our lives. This was made known to us. By who? By God. We didn't make it known to ourselves. We didn't study harder than anybody else. It was made known to us by God, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All right, so here's what we just discovered. There's this secret information that has been in a plan that God has had from time before time that he has kept hidden. And we are now aware of it and we can talk about it and we can sing about it and we can celebrate this information because God has made it known to us, right? Well, you know what I love about this? You know, there's just little things hidden here. We use the term and I think it's just a good thing to keep in front of us. Man-centered thinking or God-centered thinking. When you come to the Bible, a lot of Christians come to the Bible trying to force it to be man-centered, 
trying to, to make man the feature mover and shaker of Christianity and of, of coming to God. And it, and it becomes all about us, all about our obedience, all about our faith, all about our power, all about our faithfulness. Did you, did you know if the universe's future depended upon those qualities in us, it would be shipwrecked in a moment. It would never find its way. But praise God, the Bible and the future and the purpose of God is God-centered. So God has held on to this information. It's a purpose that he's always had from long ago in the past, but he has held it as a secret until the day that he has revealed it. So why does man know this? Not because of human ingenuity, not because of technology, not because of man's perseverance, not because man decided to get on a certain track, behave a certain way, and cultivate certain kinds of thinking. Therefore, he discovered the secret information of God. Does anybody think this Bible allows that to be the case? But there's a lot of preaching out there that just simply sounds like you just need to try harder. You just need to live a little better. You just need to morally clean it up a little bit because, you know, God's okay with the really moral people, but he's, he's not all right with the non-moral people. You know, when you stick grace in the middle of that statement, it messes up your conversation. Because grace shows up to immoral people who don't even know how immoral they really, really are. And yet God accomplished, he lavishes his grace on us. And he reveals to whom he wills himself and his purpose. Paul unpacks this mystery a little further in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. How did Paul know to preach what he preached in the New Testament? By revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it is now. Stop. Some People develop a theology that is so man-centered that God can only do and will only do what you and I let him do. Or what you and I deem good, therefore God would do that. Oh, my God would never. Oh, my God would never. Well, you know, you don't own the license on God. You don't get to tell God whether your God wouldn't or not. You just need to figure out whether or not you're his people. You don't get to figure out whether he's your God. He is who he is. And this God clearly just said he did not make this known previously as he is right now. Does that sound fair? I mean, it just sounds like there's something wrong with that, right? And I'm not here to argue that, just to make the case that the Bible simply says the God of the universe exercises the right to hide things and to reveal them at just the right time, not a moment before, and in a way that he chooses to reveal it. He has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so specifically, we're going to venture into the realm of Holy Spirit revelation here, but specifically, this context is drawing our attention to the mystery that was hidden and is now revealed is the, is the gospel the gospel in ways was hidden and now is fully revealed by God to be known. The gospel is that way. For any of us to come to really know the gospel, it is a matter of revelation, not a matter of self-determination or pride or figuring it out. It is God moving on our behalf to reveal something to us so that we can go, ah, See that? That's where that comes from. And look in verse 8. 
He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. All right, here is an interesting revelation. There is a massive great disconnect described in this passage. There's a revelation that, that you know, quite, this, let's just hear this. Let's just be informed by this for a moment. Of all the things that you and I can know that come through ears and come through eyes and that the imagination of man turns over and over again and thinks through carefully, the Bible turns around and says, there's something beyond that. There is a reality that is beyond that. Our lives are not to be informed merely by that which the eyes see and the ears hear. And our imaginations and our own thinking process. And there's something more than that. There is a revelation from God beyond that. Our lives need to tap into that. See, this is at the very heart of why any of us could sit today and say, we live in a natural-minded world and my life has become too natural-minded. Because I don't tap into this. And these guys didn't tap into this. Right? In this passage here, you have a group of people that Paul clearly says, none of the rulers had this revelation. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had a revelation, their lives would have been different. They would have had different reasons to make different decisions in their lives. They would have had a different value system. They would have seen something of glory that would have redefined what they should and shouldn't do in their life. That's what this is saying. If they had this revelation of Jesus Christ, his worth, who he is, God's plan to unite us to the Father, he's the glorious creator of everything that's seen and known, if they had had that revelation, they would have had a different value system, right? They would have looked upon Jesus as precious, as one to be worshipped, not one to be killed. So what was it operating in them that enabled in them such upside-down decision-making? It was a lack of revelation, wasn't it? That's clearly what he says. If they had seen what I'm talking about here. If they had had a revelation by the Spirit, they would not have done that. Now, I think that spreads out to be true in all kinds of ways in our lives. As a matter of fact, I think it's why Paul brings that up that way, because he's going to turn to the Corinthians, and he's going to say the same thing to them. If you guys could see some of this stuff, you would be doing differently, because revelation and doing are connected. The reason why there's strife and there's jealousy among you and there's divisions and there's quarrels among you because you don't see the word of the cross and you don't receive the revelation of the spirit. And so you live like infants. And I can't even speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Do you understand? This is why Paul is saying some of these things. The ones who crucified Christ in the natural, it made sense to them to kill him. Right? Do you understand that the people who actually killed Jesus for them, it was, a, it was a good thing to do? How upside down is that? They just, they just crucified the creator. And it made perfect sense for them to do it. This is humanity at its best. This is why we don't applaud the inner condition of man from the pulpit. Because this is what we're capable of. And the only thing that rescues us is not some deeper thing, deep down inside. You heard that phrase before? Deep down inside, people are really pretty good people. I mean, deep down. No, no, deep down they come up with crucifying the creator, deep down. Just dig a little deeper. All right, well, they'll kill somebody else. I mean, just keep going. Well, yeah, selfishness, pride, striving. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of stuff. Keep going deeper, yeah. 
The only thing that rescues us from that is what God does on our behalf. He steps in. He reveals. His spirit operates. This is the great hope that we have, right? So here's the nature of this. And then we turn to verse 9, what no eye sees, no ear hears, and then verse 10. These things, these things, where where does this insight come from? Well, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Wow, that's a big statement, right? There's something on the inside of us by God put there that enables something that naturally we couldn't do. But now we can. We can understand we have revelation by the Spirit. The Spirit turns on insights. And I don't really know how he does that. Of switches somewhere. Well, I mean, how does this stuff come to us? But it comes to us and it makes sense and it becomes our convictions and it revolutionizes our value system. What we go after, what we no longer are worried about, what we want to compete for, what's not a big deal to us. The Holy Spirit reveals something that does that to us. Here, venture into this category of Spirit-given revelation. Matthew 16, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples one day in verse 13. He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I almost pictured that moment as... Jesus puts out this casual question. People figured me out. Who do, they, who do they say that I am? And one natural thought after another. They say this. They say that. They add this and they add that and they come up with this. Okay. You are the Christ, the son of the living. I almost wonder if he spun around to see if his father was right there in the room with them. Because he knew you couldn't know that unless my father showed it to you. He saw the revelation of God in Simon. And Paul's going to go on in 1 Corinthians and say, no man says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And listen, This revelation is going to have an impact on these guys, on Peter in particular. He's going to follow Jesus to his own death because of a revelation that he is the Christ. Peter, how do you know that? I'm not really sure. I just know it. I know that I know. That's who he is. A revelation has gone off inside of him. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus speaks again about this, the nature of this Revelation by the Spirit, verse 25, he says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And all things have been handed over to me by my Father and No one, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No one. How many of y'all think the Bible means no one when it says no one? 
That's humbling, isn't it? Listen, we, we read past this too fast. This is why there is jealousy and strife among you, primarily because there's not enough humility among you. Where do you get humility from? From verses like this. From scratching your head in puzzlement, why it is that you know what you know, while the other person you're in conflict with seems to be an idiot. Right? See, I don't deal with that person humbly when I think, I've got it together. Why don't you? What the heck's wrong with you? Because there's so much right in me that I can't understand what's wrong with you. This, this kind of really undercuts that, doesn't it? Do you know you don't even know Jesus apart from the work of God in spite of you? And you got a problem with somebody else? You, you sure you're in touch with your, your giant charity case? Do you get that? Charity case, charity case, charity case. How's that feel, huh? Ain't never been a bigger welfare system than the gospel. You know charity, it's the word charis. It's the word grace. Right? This should be the most humble setting anybody could be in, the church. Because we're all charity cases. We've received something by God's doing. Paul says something a little further about his own experience in this category. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. That right there is a giant reformed theology statement. If you didn't catch what was in it, it's loaded. Right, so this is a man who was set apart before I was born. Not after, not in response to Paul getting straight A's in religious school or in his determination to be a stand-up guy. Remember, he didn't get straight A's in that. He was a persecutor of Jesus. He got F's. But yet he was set apart. Why was he set apart? Well, he was set apart and called by the grace of God. So the grace of God didn't need reasons from Paul to call him. It had reasons in God to call Paul. Aren't you glad God didn't shop for reasons in you to see whether or not you'd be a Christian or not? I don't know about you. I'm quite happy that that wasn't the arrangement. Paul says, but when he was pleased to reveal his son to me, when he was pleased to reveal his son. Paul, how did you become a Christian? When the father chose to reveal his son. And right up until that moment, I was killing people that put their faith in Christ. What did revelation do to this man? When God revealed his son to Paul, do you understand? Paul began to do differently. Paul lived a different life because of revelation by the Holy Spirit. Right? This is all throughout Scripture. If you and I ever have a hope that there's going to be anything different about you and me, it's going to be connected to a revelation by the Holy Spirit. He's going to reveal something, and you and I are going to become different people. That's what Paul says. When he was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. This is a major dose of revelation right there. Not just a moment. This is a three-year project where the Holy Spirit is revealing and revealing and revealing some things that Paul is going to preach. How many of you guys think there might be a little bit more for us to know in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2? Maybe three years in the desert might do it for us. I, 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 can I just make the point? Paul, if you just rush off, if you, you read that once, you saw it, you got introduced to a few new vocabulary words, go on your way. Really? Really? Might Paul need to see this a little bit more deeply so that it has the impact on his soul and makes him the minister of the gospel that it does and changes him? This is a reflection of the Holy Spirit's ministry in this man's life. 
Right now, just to, to chase off any of that, well, that's great. He went off by himself, he and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's how I operate too. I'm just a loner, me and God, you know, me and Jesus. That's how I figure things out. Okay, well, that's not really the Bible. That's little pieces of the Bible here and there. Right, you get Acts 15, 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, right? So there was, there's group dynamics, there's relational settings and contexts that the Holy Spirit is operating in those to bring revelation to us. All right, two quick more thoughts here, but I want you to think of these carefully because we're going to spend some time receiving something from the Lord this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. All right, if Paul knows this, if he knows this is the way the kingdom operates, in eternity past, the God of grace chose... And set forth a plan that now is unfolding and it's hidden and now he decides, okay, now it can be revealed and now it'll unfold and here's some enlightenment and, and this comes into your soul and, and the lights come on for you. That, that this is the way things are going to unfold. Wouldn't it make sense that the, perhaps, perhaps the most important thing you and I are ever going to do is pray to the God who does that? More important than whatever else I'm spending my 24 hours on, the God who is behind all this, me appealing, calling out, praying, and relating to him, that might be the most important thing I'm going to do. And that's what Paul sounds like. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What are you praying, Paul? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Isn't this strange? I mean, although I don't want to limit this because there is a human dimension to our lives that we should pay attention to. Paul is going to tell us, renew your minds, study to show yourself approved. But when Paul prays, he prays on the God end of the equation. God would give you a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Enlightened. This light's come on. It becomes real to you. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Right. Revelation does this, right? Revelation that brings enlightenment, that your hearts may be enlightened. Okay, that's revelation. The Holy Spirit operates somehow to enlighten us in our hearts. And when that happens, it produces an awareness of hope. It produces inheritance awareness and power awareness. All right, so here's the flow. Revelation, enlightenment that produces and suddenly now into my toolbox into my heart's way of thinking through life is no longer just natural stuff. Right, Just the consequences of life and the wisdom of the age. And if that person does that, and they've always done that, and that's always been the way they've been, they're never going to be any different than that. Right, This natural thinking is inside my soul. But when the Holy Spirit enlightens something in me, what comes into my soul now is hope. An awareness of inheritance. An awareness of power is now operating in me. Don't you know I might do something different in my next step? Because I might believe something different. I might be convinced of something different. I might be aware of what God is like in a way that I wasn't before. Right, this is the great need of enlightenment. Paul's going to come back to this again. This is a huge theme for him. Ephesians 3 verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, grant you, oh, would God just give it to you, grant to you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. Right, this is a revelation issue. 
with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Sometimes we're looking for a really quick shortcut to being filled with all the fullness of God. And, and God does show up quickly and suddenly. And it's in the Bible. But in this context, this revelation dimension is going to posture us for the fullness of God. It's going to have its way in our soul. It's going to transform us on the inside in a way that the fullness of God can now operate in us. All right, so what has this got to do with what Paul was saying to these Corinthians? Well, remember that little phrase we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. If they had understood, if they had had this revelation, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Right? Paul is praying for spirit revelation to connect with their lives because that changes the way we live. If we have this revelation in our hearts, we will do life differently. We will. Take note in your outline there. It says, Paul prays that this would be the experience of the Ephesians, and he insinuates that the lack of this revelation is the source of the Corinthians' problems. You're like, you're like infants who don't know anything, who haven't seen anything. But he's going to clarify something, and I'm going to do this really, really fast just to, to get a bad, some bad theology off the table before we apply this. He clarifies something. He says you're acting like mere human beings, right? In this little, and he sums up this. You're, you're, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people. You're, you're like so fleshy. I just had, I spoke to you like... You didn't have insight in these categories. All right, question. Were they or were they not spiritual people? Well, he answers that in this passage, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is the condition of the natural person. So Paul would have no shock value in what he says next if he thought y'all are natural people. And then he'd go, I get why you don't get it. It makes perfect sense to me why you don't get it. Because this is foolishness. This, this stuff sounds stupid to you. Because you don't have the spirit and you can't see it. You're not able. His shock is that that's not what's true of you. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have, we, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. How do we have the mind of Christ? Well, the Spirit searches the mind and makes the mind known to us. So we have the mind of Christ. So they could only have the mind of Christ if they had the Spirit. So here's the great alarm in this passage. You have Christians who have the Holy Spirit. Paul says, but you live like you don't. Which is why Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that, that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Right? We're, we're always in need of growing in this area. It's not unique to the Corinthians. It's true for us as well. But, but, but take that off the table. If you're one of those people who's arguing from this passage, you're just not reading it very carefully. That, well, there were non-spiritual people and spiritual people in the church in Corinth. No, no, you can't be in the church without being a spiritual person. You are not gods unless you are born again by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is in these people. But there seems to be an operational disconnect taking place here to where what they could be receiving, they are not receiving. And listen... All of us have that vulnerability. All of us have the possibility that this great, incredibly deep, amazing truth of God, that we have the Holy Spirit who reveals the things of God to us and freely gives them to us that we may understand the things God has made, that's available to us. We can understand these things. We can be impacted by them, but perhaps we are not. And where there is jealousy and strife and competing and quarreling and refusal to come together and be unified, where that's present, 
there's a disconnect between you and what the Holy Spirit will do in your life. Fact, there's a disconnect. Not saying you're not a Christian, not saying you don't have the Holy Spirit. Just saying it doesn't seem to be doing you any good. And Paul's alarmed by that. A couple of thoughts from two commentators. Craig Keener says, Continuing the deeply ingrained habits characteristic of their culture, even God's people in Corinth also engaged in rivalry and division. Such divisions reflected the character of the surrounding world. Why were they behaving this way? Because they were absorbing from the world around them who to be, what to value, how to operate, how to treat other people, how to make sure you advanced your own cause, because that'd be the worst thing if you were overlooked or not sufficiently applauded or you didn't get enough likes. That could be a severe problem to your psyche. Gordon Fee says, Paul, of course, does not mean to say they do not have the spirit. They do. And that's the problem. Because they are thinking and behaving otherwise. The argument has considerable bite. Therefore, since his ultimate message is, stop it. People of the Spirit simply must stop behaving the way you are. How's that for an altar call? <laughs> I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm struggling. Here. Stop it. Well, you don't understand, man. You don't know my spouse. Yeah, stop it. Stop it. How many of us just, you know, we hate that kind of counsel? Right? I didn't come to you to tell me to stop it. I just came for you to kind of understand why I'm not stopping it. Well, how about if the Bible turns around and, and, and does a presentation of the cross and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and then turns around and says, now stop it. Do not operate another day out of that information, that wisdom of the age. It's where you got that. Because the wisdom of the age told you how to protect yourself, how to advance your issue, how to make sure that person doesn't take advantage of you, how you have rights, how that's not fair, right? The wisdom of the age taught you all those phrases. And now you're in a situation where you're demanding that all those things be maintained. Stop it. Stare at the cross and get a Holy Spirit-given revelation of what took place and who that was and let humility flood your soul. And you will have a different outlook on whether or not you're going to get along with that person or not. I got a little tree illustration there for you to stare at before we move to some ministry time. Here's that little paragraph. Here's Paul's reasoning as far as I can see in these chapters. It's this. One, there is a spirit-given revelation that informs, transforms, and shapes our lives. Two, the rulers, the debaters of this age didn't have it or they would have lived differently. Three, you have the spirit. Thus, you have access to this revelation that informs and transforms and shapes life. Four, but you are living like those who don't have access to this revelation, natural only, which is producing the fruit of boasting and jealousy and strife and heightened self-interest, which for the believer is characterized by the word immature, infantile, or mere men. All right, now notice. If you just want to do a reality check for yourself. If, you know, a tree will be known by its fruit. That's a, that's a guarantee from the Son of God. A tree will be known by its roots that produce fruit. So which, which of these lists are characterizing your life right now? Because if there's, if there's a, a constant interaction, a frequent visiting, a struggling with, with jealousy, self-interest, boasting, boasting kind of hides its way into our lives. It demands to be seen a certain way. 
and it avoids people who won't see us that way. I mean, it shows up in a sneaky little kind of way. It doesn't always come out like, I'm great, you think I'm great? I'm great, you think I'm great? It doesn't come showing like that. It's kind of like, I know you don't think I'm great, so I don't want to be around you. That's a boasting problem. I can't get people to boast, so I'm not going to be around the people who don't boast with me about me. Quarreling. Divisions. And so here's a guarantee. If, because in this section, the debate is between the word of the cross, the revelation by the spirit about the word of the cross, and the wisdom of the age. If that's what's characterizing our life, then the reality is we are rooted in the wisdom of the age. We are borrowing the ideas, the influence that came into our lives from all the years of living and continuing to live in this world, and they're shaping the outcome of our lives. On the other hand, the revelation by the Spirit, it gives us an ability to unite with others, to lay down my interests to the place where I can now take up yours in a servant manner. I learned that by staring at the cross. To be like-minded, to have the priorities that emptied heaven of the Son of God so that that priority of reconciling man to God is a shadow-casting reality on everything about me. It's bigger than everything else. It's cross-centered. There's humility in my life. There's, there's courage. Remember Paul said last week, we looked at this, Paul said, I was among you with fear and trembling and weakness, but I was still among you. There was courage. But this is the kind of stuff revelation by the Spirit brings. So, so here's, here's the challenge this morning. Depending on where you're seeing yourself, which tree you're seeing yourself, this isn't necessarily a one-time fix-it moment, is it? Because I can't give you everything this morning of a revelation by the Spirit, but it is, a, it is revealing a pattern of our lives. It's revealing that we're poor in the revelation of the Spirit while we're too rich in the wisdom of the age. And, and we're going to have to do something about that. All right, here's, Eric, you can come back. Here's what I'd like for us to do. I, th I think this translates into a number of categories. Now, now realize I, I'm going I'm to narrow this because of the context of how Paul was addressing the first of the issues among the Corinthians. It's the first of the issues. They're quarreling, their divisiveness, they're striving in jealousy, they're comparing, etc. He's going to move on to other issues soon. There's going to be sexual immorality issues. There's giving of yourself to pleasure. There's going to be some other issues that need a revelation by the Spirit about the cross as well. Let's just live in this one this morning. I feel like the Lord wants to particularly deal with some relational elements. This is, this is true in the church. But it is true today in marriages. I'm going to say in a heightened way. Would you agree with that, Peter? Yeah. True today of marriages in a heightened way. I know some of the other guys who are doing some marriage counseling, I know would jump on board with that. So I'd like, I'd like to minister to the married couples that are here today. And so in just a moment, if you're married, I'm going to ask you to come forward and we're going to pray for you. And here's going to be the challenging part. If you are practicing as a couple, quarreling, conflicts, can't seem to come together, can't seem to abide together in agreement, and that's an ongoing practice, this is going to be a really interesting moment for you, isn't it? And here's what's going to make it even worse. I'm not giving you the option to not come forward. So you don't get to sit in the chair and say, we ain't getting along right now and ain't no way I'm coming forward. <laughs> here's going to be my advice to you. Stop it. Right now, 
Stop it. Remember this. Marriage is, is, is sort of like a franchise. You, you sort of don't really own it. It's designed and it's informed by purposes of God. He owns that. He owns the right, right? So if you decide, you know, you, you want to buy a Taco Bell, you, you know, you don't get to, to serve hamburgers there, right? You don't, you don't get that. Even though you own the place, sort of, you don't have the right. Your marriage is, is a franchise. It's a franchise owned by God. It's designed to bring forth the glory of God and the revelation of how Christ loves his church upon the earth. That's what it's designed for. So if it's being used for something different than that right now, you're going to really be challenged, right? But God wants his marriage back. So if you've been hijacking God's marriage for quite a while now, he wants it back. This morning, he wants it back. He wants that to be done with. And I know you might say, hey, we're going to need some real marriage counseling. You know, I, I can't give you any greater marriage counseling than starting right here where this starts. A revelation of the cross by the Spirit. Because if that doesn't take place, the best marriage books, the best marriage counseling cannot do what that word can do. So it's got to start there. So let me... Let me ask all the married folks to come on and come forward so we can ask the Lord to meet with us this morning. Mm-hmm.